Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Welcome, guys, again. It is good to be with you here this morning. We're going to continue our study today in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll pick up where we were last week in Matthew chapter 13 in verse 53. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, and as you're turning, let me just say thank you on behalf of me and my family for your prayers this past week as we traveled up to Michigan. It was a fast and furious trip up there on Sunday and part of Monday and had our appointment and got the best news that we possibly could have hoped for um, at James's appointment and then uh, made our way back first thing Wednesday morning. And so uh, it was a good trip. Again, everything was uh, beyond our expectations, and we know that's in part because of your prayers. And so uh, that's greatly appreciated. And thanks to Pastor Jimmy for filling in on Wednesday evening. I trust that you guys were encouraged by the word that he had to share. Hopefully you've turned now to Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53. What we have this week, as I've already alluded to, is I believe a continuation of our study in Matthew chapter 13. We've come to this place, remember, where Jesus has begun in his ministry to teach in parables, and it's for a particular purpose. And we're actually here at this point with Jesus at about the two-year point in his ministry. That's how long he has been ministering for. That's how long his disciples, some of them, have, have been with him for. He's about a year out from the cross at Calvary at this point, just to put it into context for you. And he's using these parables. And throughout the next chapter here in chapter 14, we're actually going to be seeing real-life examples of Jesus' teaching. A couple of the key parables in Matthew 13 ultimately convey really two critical things for us to consider. One is with the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils, we see the various hearts and their receptivity to the gospel. And secondly then, and really as a product of that, there's a consequence. If Jesus is teaching, if he's giving us a parable that's intended for us to understand that various hearts receive the gospel in a particular way, some reject him, some receive him, that ultimately there is a choice. There are two paths. There's a path that leads to Jesus, and then there's a path that leads away from Jesus. No matter what the world will tell you, not all roads lead to God. Not all roads lead to Jesus. There is one path to God that's through Jesus Christ. He himself has declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so to go away from Jesus is to go the path of condemnation and of eternal torment. That's the reality of it. That's the reality that each of us must consider, especially when we're confronted with the truths of Scripture. Now, as we consider these this morning, I would ask that you would be willing to reflect on your own heart and to consider how you relate to these examples, whether, again, it's a matter of receiving Jesus Christ for the very first time as Lord and Savior, or just as you listen to these examples and find inevitably some similarities there, even in, in your own life. You know, I know for me, as I study this, I can find examples of my own hardness of heart, ways in which the soil of my heart needs to be changed so that I would be receptive to what it is that God wants to do in my life. And as we come then to verse 53, we see the first example here. This is verse 53 of chapter 13. It's a great example of hard hearts. This is the wayward 
soil. This is the hard path where there's no soil for the word of God, the seed of the word of God to take root in. And ironically, it's right in Jesus's hometown. If you'd read along with me here in verses 53 and 54. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So here Jesus has come to Nazareth. This is his hometown. And he goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach. First he reads from the scripture, and then he sits down and he begins to expound on it. Now the teaching itself impresses the people in that he teaches with authority, he teaches with wisdom, but it's almost so good that they just can't believe it. Now, why is it that they would struggle to believe it? Well, because they knew Jesus. And I don't mean that in that they knew him to be somebody else that he, he didn't speak very good as a child, but simply that they were familiar with him. Jesus had grown up in this town. For some of these people, he might be more known as the, the neighbor boy for, you know, from next door. As they have this sense of familiarity with Jesus then they're beginning to look in and think, well, this, this family was just like them. His family was just like them, at least in their eyes. right? And so Jesus is coming off to them. As, as he's just a normal guy. Yet here he is teaching these things with great authority, with great wisdom. Think about, this maybe makes more sense to us, if we think about someone who's really famous. right? Maybe there's somebody who you, if you were just honest, maybe you don't want to tell everybody this, but there's just some famous person, you're like, oh man, I'd just love to meet that person. I think they're so cool. right? They're a great actor, this and that. And you kind of put them, you, you build them up as like this amazing thing, right? Have you ever thought what their friends, their close friends and their family think about who they are? Their friends and family probably think that's just so-and-so. I've known them forever. I grew up with them. They're not that special. They're not that untouchable, if you will. Okay, there's something that familiarity does. So as you think about these people and you think about how they might view Jesus, it starts to make a little bit of sense to us. As they say in verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James and Joseph, which can be translated Joseph, or Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And so there's a, there's a sense of, of sort of surprise here. But then it says in verse 57, so they were offended at him. Now familiarity is one thing, but we should ask, why is it that they were offended? It would be helpful for our understanding to know what it is that Jesus taught them. And fortunately, we have in the Gospel of Luke insight into what Jesus taught. In Luke, in chapter 4, Beginning in verse 16, we read this. This is Luke's account of the same event. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
So you see, Jesus, whom they knew, or at least they thought they knew, the boy who grew up with them, the one who they had spent time around, now declares that he is the one prophesied of by Isaiah to preach to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set them free from their blindness and oppression and captivity. And the question becomes, for them, why you? What's so special about you? Maybe even some thinking, who who do you think you are? You're normal like us. You're not better than me. You think I'm blind or oppressed? And so you see, it offends when you hear these things, just as the gospel today often offends as the work of the Holy Spirit begins to reveal the condition of one's heart. You may have experienced this yourself when you came to Christ, or maybe as you've shared the gospel with another. Maybe you hear people often say, oh, there's so much judgment in the church. And sadly, that is often true, that the church can be a judgmental people. We need to be careful about that. But much of the time, that's just somebody's reaction to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their life. And you see, far too often, familiarity and even proximity can actually cloud our perspective. And I think we're seeing that with the people of Nazareth. The hard soil of their hearts prevented them from receiving the word. Often, this is seen in those who are closest in physical, but not spiritual proximity to Jesus. What do I mean by that? Oftentimes, those who are resistant to the word of God are those who are raised in the church. Pastor's kids, oftentimes you hear of those who have rejected Christ. Whether it's self-righteousness that's rooted in works, while I've, I've just done all of these things my whole life, or simply because they know the stories that they've begun to convince themselves that they're okay because they're under the covering, if you will, of the church. But their life is yet to be transformed. Sometimes they even convince themselves that they're better than everyone else. I can speak to a personal example of this that kind of puts it into perspective. When I, growing up in our conference that our, our school was in uh, for athletics, we would play, you know, of course, against all these different schools. One school was the Christian school. Uh, we, I did not go to, I went to a public school, but in that conference was this Christian school. And it's an interesting thing because it was sort of the general consensus amongst all the other schools that when you went to play this particular school, they were not going to act like Christians. If you ran into them elsewhere, out in public, that these people just didn't act like Christians. It was sort of the, again, the the perception of the community that this particular Christian school was anything but. And they carried themselves with an air of we're better than you because we go to the Christian school. But they didn't live it out. You see, oftentimes religion and again familiarity, proximity to the things of the Lord can create a false sense of security. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. See, Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, in his own hometown. Some of you maybe have left your hometown and in the time that you were away, you got saved. And maybe it made it a difficult thing then for you to go back home. Oftentimes, I think we make it a little bit more difficult than what it needs to be. But nevertheless, you have this sense of, I'm a different person now, but they knew me at a different time. Now, that's different, of course, than Jesus. Jesus didn't have this baggage like we do to deal with when he goes back. But nevertheless, there's this sense of you were one thing and now you're this. And it can make it hard for people. It can make it hard for us. Certainly, that's the case here for them. 
that it's difficult for them to accept that Jesus might in fact be the Messiah, not just the boy next door. So because, sadly, of their unbelief in their hard hearts, they did not experience what Jesus had to offer them. This is an example of hard hearts, unwilling to receive the seed of the Word of God. Now we come to another account, this time, in my opinion, of a divided heart, one whose seed is being choked out by the things of the world. We read in chapter 14, verse 1, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus, and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Now, this is Herod Antipas. He's son of Herod the Great, the one who was ruling when Jesus was born and, and gave the direction to kill all of the young boys in the area. Herod Antipas, his son, was a tetrarch. And so what that means is that he, he oversaw a portion of his father's kingdom, a quarter of it to be exact, along with his brothers. And so this Herod oversaw the Galilee region, and for that reason he was increasingly familiar with the ministry of Jesus because Jesus was really ministering in that area predominantly. However, what we see is that Herod did not see Jesus for who he was, but rather as a threat. In fact, what he saw in Jesus really came more from a place of paranoia and fear that was rooted in his own sin and tied back to John the Baptist. As we read there, that he declares that this must be John the Baptist back from the dead. And so, in the following verses, Matthew sort of pauses to give us the backstory on John the Baptist relative to Herod so that we understand why Herod is thinking this way. Now, the last we had heard of John the Baptist was back in chapter 11, where we simply read that he was in prison and he sent his disciples to talk to Jesus. That it's yet at this point, we find that in chapter 11, John had not yet died, but now we come to this place where we hear that he's dead. And so Matthew wants to give us insight into why and how this happened. In verse 3, we read, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Now, time would not allow for us this morning to consider the soap opera that is Herod's life, okay? You can just imagine, if he were living now, it would be, These are the days of the Herod's lives, right? Or real housewives of Galilee. It's filled with political scandal, relationship drama, divorce, murder, incest, corruption, and the list goes on and on. Now I'll try to summarize for you here. Herodias was originally married to Herod's brother Philip. Now we get that much from Scripture. What we don't get is that Herodias was actually Philip's and Herod's niece. So Philip marries the daughter of his brother, but then she falls for the other brother, her other uncle, who is Herod. So Herod then puts away his wife illegally, steals his brother's wife, which happens to also lead to war with his ex-wife's family. And as we'll see shortly, he also finds himself then in a precarious position with the girl who is now his niece and stepdaughter. And really, quite frankly, this is mild compared to Herod Sr., okay? This gives you a little bit of flavor as to what's going on in this family. Now in verse 6, But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever 
she might ask. Essentially, what's happening here is that Herod, who is probably drunk, becomes enamored with this young woman who is dancing before him. She's probably a teenager, in case you're wondering, but is considered of marrying age at this time. And foolishly, he offers her something that he really has no authority to give. Remember, he's not a king. He's just ruling a quarter of the kingdom that was his father's. And he doesn't have the ability to really make this oath to her. Verse 8, So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. No doubt Herod was not expecting this request. But Herodias was a schemer. She had plotted this whole thing. Why did she do that? Because she hated John the Baptist. Why? Because John was standing for truth, which meant exposing her sin. As the greatest prophet, John the Baptist was doing his job. He was calling out their sin, and she wanted to silence him, just as, if many of us are honest, many still today want their sin and their conscience silenced. Now Herodias, it seems, is a great example of a hard heart. In the face of what John the Baptist was declaring, she refused to receive it. But what of Herod in his heart? Well, it reads in verse 9, And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it be given to her. You see, I believe that Herod's heart is an example of the divided heart that we find in the thorny soil. Now, it says here that he was sorry. And so am I making that assumption based off of this one thing that it just simply says that he was sorry? Mark gives us a little bit more insight as he writes in his account in Mark chapter 6. And uh, in Mark chapter 6, in verse 16 and following, it says, again, of the same account, But when Herod heard, he said, This is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. See, Mark gives us a little bit more insight into the fact here that I believe Herod was somewhat affected and impacted by the ministry of John the Baptist and the words or the seeds that were being planted. You see, with Herod, if ever there was a man who had legitimate father issues, Herod was that man. He was deeply troubled, insecure, and I think that John the Baptist made sense to Herod. I think the things that he was sharing made sense to him. Scripture says that he liked to hear him. I think the words were having an impact on Herod's life. But sadly, like many others, the thorns of this life, the corrupt and negative influence of those around you, like they were around Herod, which inevitably, if dealt with, leads to the loss of friends. Herod had to be thinking about the, the supposed friends that he would lose, and maybe that sounds familiar to you as well as you've gone through that. Uh, 
Maybe it's his fear of being found out for the man that he truly was. Not necessarily, if I could, like the, the social media profile suggested he was, right? The different things in this life that we've sort of built up and, and begin to think, man, if this is proven out, if this comes true, well, then what will people think about me? fact of the matter is, this is exactly what Herod needed to do. He needed to be found out for the man that he was so that he could experience the love of Christ. But all these other things began to come in. Even further was his pride, his status, his wealth, his perceived power. All of these things. For Herod, too much was at stake. And in a moment of drunken lust, which was really just one sin leading to another, to another, he makes a grave mistake. And all of these things that he holds dear get put on the line. But instead of repenting and doing what was right, you see, in this moment, Herod could have said, I'm wrong, I'm not going to do this. And, and yes, he would, have, he would have maybe given up a sense of, of power. He, he would have maybe lost some friendships. He certainly would have had an, an angry wife, but he could have said, no, this isn't right. I've made a mistake. Instead, he allows the thorns to come in and choke out the very last breath of conviction in his life. And so we read in verse 10, so he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. See, it's a sad end to much of the account and the story we have of Herod. What Scripture doesn't give us that the extra-biblical texts do is that in time, both Herod and Herodias would get into a spat with his brother. His brother would accuse him of treason. That would involve then the, the Roman government would come down on him. As a result of that, they would send them into exile in the Gauls, and both Herod and Herodias would commit suicide. It's a sad end to a life where the word of God was beginning to have influence, but the cares of the world choked it out. We read then in verse 12, Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, verse 13, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Now, we don't know why Jesus went away at this time, whether it was to mourn John or to consider the way in which this was pointing to his own death, because John was a forerunner of Christ, and his stand for truth and his death ultimately pointed to the cross. But maybe it was both of these things. But Jesus was not alone for long. As we read, but when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I suspect many of you, if not every single one of you, has experienced a really long, tiring day. You're a little bit overwhelmed. Maybe there's some circumstance in your life that's made you sad, and you just think to yourself, I can't wait to just go home and to get alone. And I'm going to assume that all of us are being super spiritual, right? And we're not just going to munch and watch TV. We're going to get into the Word right? And we're going to pray because that's what Jesus was doing. And so you get settled in, right? And you're in that space. and You're like, oh, praise the Lord. Here I am. I just get to rest now. And all of a sudden, oh, what is it? And you go to the door and it is just a huge crowd of people, all of your friends and closest followers. Yeah, we'll do that. It's your social media followers, right? Your closest friends, all of them, all of them that you've amassed. And they just say, we just want to be with you. I'm going to spend time with you, right? And you're thinking to yourself, oh, praise the Lord. Come on in. I am ready, right? There's a couple of you weird extroverted people in this room that are like, yeah, that sounds awesome, right? And the, but the rest of you are like, no, no, right? I can't do that. 
We have to understand here, Jesus, I mean, he was ministering and ministering and ministering. And here he was going to be alone. But look at our Savior. It says that he has compassion for them. Mark gives us other insight that he says he has compassion for them as sheep without a shepherd. And so we must recognize here the mercy and compassion of Jesus. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. And so what that should encourage us with is I know there's some of you that think, man, I don't want to bring my problems to God. He's too busy. I hear people say that. He's too busy. He's God. That's a dumb comment. Don't say God's too busy. He is not too busy, okay? You bring your stuff to him. Or people will say, you know, we have a prayer gathering, and people are like, well, yeah, I don't need, you guys don't need to pray about that, right? And, no, guys, we've got to do that. We've got to be willing. He, he is our pattern. He's our example. He has compassion on us. And so here he's tired. He's probably sad. There's some heaviness that he's dealing with as he's considering his own path. Yet he's still able to have compassion on others and to give of himself. And this is no small crowd, okay? I love how Matthew writes sometimes. He says there's a great multitude. And this gives us a sense, okay, it's got to be a lot of people. As we'll see here shortly, this is thousands of people, okay? Thousands of people. And Jesus puts on a clinic up until the evening. As it says in verse 15, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now here we can identify with something a bit more familiar, right? Or a bit more like the disciples here as they're thinking, man, it's time for these people to go. Practically speaking, they're saying, we just got to close up shop today. They're thinking it's been long, uh, it's been a long day, we can't take care of these people, we can't feed these people, but what's about to happen here is going to eventually reveal some things, both about the crowd that's following Jesus, but also it's going to serve to accomplish something in the disciples as well. We read in verse 16, but Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away, you give them something to eat. First, Jesus says they don't need to go away we see here more of the heart of Jesus. The disciples are ready to send the masses away, and, and we would too, but Jesus knows where they need to be. And that's close to Him in His presence. And the same is true for us. So once again, I would submit to you that in those moments when you feel like it's just not something you need to take to the Lord, that's the wrong thought. We absolutely need to take everything we have to the Lord and spend time in His presence. And then, of course, Jesus says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. And I can only imagine Peter in this moment looking over to the rest of his friends and thinking, is this a quiz, right? How, how am I supposed to respond to this? What do we, we give them something to eat? What, what, what do we have? And so they say to him in verse 17, we, we have here only five loaves and two fish. This is all that we have, Lord. And Jesus says in verse 18, bring them here to me. I want you to see something here. The, the disciples... They look to Jesus here and they say, this is all that we have. There are sometimes for us incredible truths embedded within Scripture that we can easily just gloss right over. And Jesus says here to them as they go, Lord, this is, this is, this is all that I have. This is it. It's nothing. And Jesus says, bring it to me. And as we know, he's going to do something supernatural with what they have. What we must recognize here, friends, is that throughout history, God has successfully taken what man has seen as little or not enough and has turned it into something great. Over and over and over again. Look at the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. Look throughout the Old Testament. Did any of them have anything that they could really offer other than what little they had? 
No, but what they did is they brought that and God used it in miraculous ways. This should be an encouragement to each of you who find yourselves in a situation where maybe you don't feel like you have what it takes. You don't feel like you have something to offer the Lord. You maybe feel like what you did have, you squandered, and, and now it's just beyond God's reach of, of, of grace and of mercy and of redemption. And, and in every one of those cases, if that's what you've convinced yourself of, then you're believing the lie of the enemy. God can absolutely work with whatever it is that you have to bring. Some of you maybe think you're not talented enough. God, what you need to understand is, is God says, as written by Paul in Ephesians, we've considered this many times recently, that you are his work of art. You are his poem. What he says about you is that he's created each and every one of you for a purpose. That he's created you for good works that you may walk in them. The implication there is that he has a plan for your life. And that he is able to do something incredible with your life. So please, if this is you, stop thinking that you have nothing to offer the Lord. Toward that end, each and every one of you should be in ministry in some, in some respect, right? Each of you should, should realize that you have something to give to the Lord. And that he can use it. And that he can make you into something that you never thought you could be. And that he can use your offering, however small you may perceive it to be, to be sustenance for thousands. Whatever you bring to him, what he wants is your heart. He wants your life. And you may think that it is not enough, but just bring it to him and let him work. As he does this then with the food that's brought to him, in verse 19 we read, Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes, and so they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men besides women and children. You see, when we read this story, we often talk about the feeding of the five thousand. The heading in your Bible likely says as much, but this misses so much of what's going on here in that it says that it was 5,000 men plus women and children. And so if we do, and we, if we just take averages of family size during this time, the likelihood of uh, adult males who were married and then having kids, the fact is this crowd was likely anywhere from as low as 10,000 to upwards of 24,000 people that were gathered to see Jesus at this time. I mean, this is a serious event by today's standards. And here, Jesus feeds them all. Now, most of them probably did not even understand what had just happened. That many people, they weren't part of the conversation that Jesus was having with the disciples. I would submit to you that the work of multiplying the loaves and the fishes was for the disciples, not for the crowd. And we'll see that, I think, play out later on in this story. For the, for the masses, what they knew was this. Jesus seems like a really cool guy. I'm digging what I'm hearing. And man, my belly's full now. You better believe they're going to continue to follow. They're going to keep following. So to this point, we've seen the hard heart in the group in Nazareth. Uh, we've seen the divided heart in Herod. So what of the masses here? It seems, as I said, that they're really excited about Jesus. But I think for many, not all of them, but for many in this crowd, I believe they had superficial hearts. Hearts where the soil is that stony ground, where it takes root for a little while, but then it quickly burns away. 
As again, they're thinking, Jesus is awesome. I, I want to follow Him. He teaches me. He feeds me. And so they continue to. They follow Him. But shortly here, Jesus will put the disciples into a boat. He'll send them across the Sea of Galilee. Then Jesus is going to take a different route across. And this crowd that's following Him, they're going to figure out how to get to Him. They're going to walk around the sea, and they're going to get to Him. And so let's take a look for a moment here at the Gospel of John in chapter 6 just to have a better understanding of what happens with this crowd eventually. In John chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 26, here the, the crowd has made their way to Jesus. They've found him again. And Jesus says to them as they come and they approach him, he, Jesus answers them and says in verse 26, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Verse 27, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. Now, I don't mean to disparage these people, but I believe what Jesus is communicating to them here is, you've come and you've sought me out, you've come all this way to seek after me, because you've enjoyed what you heard and you had a good meal. Now, Jesus is not condemning them here, but given the opportunity now to challenge them as he does with all of us and to call them deeper, he says to them, you don't need to have your belly filled. You don't need the bread that I fed you with yesterday. What you need is the bread of life. Jesus, knowing their hearts, knowing that they do not yet know truly who he is, is challenging them on what you need is not bread for life on this earth. You need eternal life and I'm that bread. Now he begins to explain this to them. We don't have time to consider all of this passage today. If we jump ahead to verse 53 in John chapter 6, we see that Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Here Jesus is communicating to them the truth of the gospel. I am the bread. I am the wine. He is foreshadowing here uh, the new covenant, that which he will put into place there at the Last Supper, where with the disciples he once again comes back to this principle and says, this is the bread of my body. This is my blood shed for you. As he continues to point them to what it is that he is going to accomplish for them, that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that he is that Lamb that they sacrificed on that Passover that in Him they have life. But as we see then there in verse 60, many of His disciples when they heard this said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And as we then see, many would turn away. Many would go away. As it says in verse 66, from that time many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. You see, for them their heart was superficial. The seed had taken root, but it burnt away when the sun came up, when things got a little too hard because the root was shallow. And we must ask ourselves, do, do any of these things speak to, to who I am or where I'm at or what the soil of my heart is like? Has your faith really been tested? Or maybe is God asking of you something that you feel is just too hard? 
that to truly follow the Lord, you're at a place where you're saying, I don't know if I can do this. Now, what of the disciples? Clearly, theirs is the fruitful heart. Of all of those that we've seen, the disciples must be the ones who are ready and are receiving the word of God. In fact, we see here in verse 68 and 69 of John chapter 6, but Simon Peter, when all those were going away, Jesus looks at his, his, his disciples and he says, do you want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How was it that they came to this conclusion? Well, amongst many other things, they had been through the storm with Jesus. Now, we don't have time for this today. We'll pick back up in verse 22 of Matthew 14 next week. And I want to encourage you to be here. You don't want to miss it. Okay, I think it's going to be an encouraging message to you as we consider Peter stepping out of the boat and walking on water to Jesus. But I want us to consider this much of that account here today as we begin to close. We've seen the hard hearts, the divided heart, the superficial heart, and, and now we come to the disciples here. And, and what we need to recognize here is, is all this amazing stuff is happening, right? Jesus is working miracles. Ministry is really growing. I mean, he's had thousands of people show up to his rally, as it were, right? This is a big event. And the disciples have got to be thinking, this is great. People want to follow us. And then Jesus has used them to basically be a part of performing this miracle. And so they've just been a part of seeing something absolutely miraculous happen. And what does Jesus do? He immediately puts them on a boat and sends them out into what seems to be just a storm, right? So their minds are thinking, we were just doing this awesome thing, and then Jesus put us on a boat and sent us into a storm. I think maybe there's a metaphor in there somewhere. But here's the thing, as they go out on the boat, as he sends them out, and as he goes away, then as they're out there and the storm feels like it's about to overtake them, Jesus shows up in a manner least expected by them. As they're looking out there and they don't recognize him at first, but then eventually he declares that it is him. And in continued demonstration of his power and of his authority, as he not only walks on the water, he also calms the storm. He calms the storm. And as he calms the storm, and as he then comes back to the boat, what is the inevitable conclusion for these men? To worship him and to declare that he is the Son of God. As they say there back in Matthew chapter 14, verses 32 and 33, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. As I said, we'll consider this account more next week, but what I want us to see as I close is this. Those in Nazareth with hard hearts saw Jesus as just one of them, a normal guy, just part of their lives, seemingly immune to his power. They did not worship him. Herod saw in, in John first and then in Jesus a threat to his comfort and to his pleasures in this life and in this world. And so thorns came up and choked out the word, and he did not worship him. And the crowds saw Jesus as a miracle worker and one who could fill their bellies until things began to get kind of hard. And the superficial growth in their lives withered, and they did not worship him. But the disciples who brought Jesus what little they had, but trusted him with it. Who trusted and looked to Jesus in the midst of the storm, kept their eyes fixed on him. They came to believe and to know that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
and in rightly seeing him, they worshiped him. So the question for us is no different than last week. Which one are you? Which one are you? If you're honest, which is the soil of your heart? Rest assured that the way you see Jesus will determine how you worship him. So we need to ask ourselves, how do I see him today? Once again, as I shared at the very beginning, perhaps there are some here today who have not surrendered their life to Christ. Maybe there's some of you that, again, have given your life to Christ, but you recognize that maybe there's some things that have happened that have changed the soil of your heart. Maybe you're not seeing Jesus the way that you ought to today, and it's affecting your worship. And when you have opportunities to lay things before Him, when you have opportunities to sing your praises to Him, if you're honest, you're just not feeling it. And maybe the Holy Spirit is working in your life, trying to reveal some things and draw you unto Himself again, such that you could say, I've come to know and to be confident that you are the risen Lord, Son of the living God, my Savior, my Messiah, and I'm going to worship you with my whole life. Let's not leave here today without allowing the Lord to do that necessary work in our lives to accomplish what it is that He desires to accomplish. If you would, agree with me in prayer. Father, as we close here now, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we give you praise. Just who you are, Lord, for what you're for what you have done, what you're doing in our lives, that you care enough about us to meet us right where we are, that you, the Holy Spirit draws us, whether under repentance or just continually closer and closer to you, sanctifying us, setting us apart, working in our lives, stripping our lives of anything that's not of you. Lord, we thank you for that work. And Father, I do pray for each of us here today, myself included, Lord, that we would be a people that would be surrendered before you, a people with soft hearts, a good soil. Not only your, the word of God unto salvation, the gospel is taking root, but, but Lord, as you continue to, to plant your word within us, Lord, that it's, it's growing and bearing much fruit in our lives. But I would pray for those that today need to surrender all to you. That's you, that you would just very simply do exactly what Jesus said to do, and that's believe on him for salvation. To say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I repent of my sin. And I give my life to you. I want to live for you, Lord, and no longer for this world. You just tell them what's on your heart and your mind. So, Father, do that work in our hearts here in this place today, Lord. And again, Lord, uh, make us a people. We're ready always to receive what you have for us, Lord. That it might be for your glory. Lord, ultimately we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.